How's your wishlist been going? Is the game been going strong so far? It is, but I'm also a first-timer, so I'm not really sure what to expect. I was talking to a dev a few days back. I think he was saying the wishlist to the people who actually bought his game on launch. Usually it's like a five, I think average for devs is like a five to 10% redemption. And I think he was sitting at like three or four. So he was right at that mark. So like, it's kind of, it's one of those weird numbers things, but like, if you get ahead of it and you're probably what, you're not launching till the fall or some point. Yeah. Okay. Fine. So yeah, you got plenty of time right now so i mean if you just keep it rolling yep. you should be you should be good to go and mark it's weird because yeah with development i mean i think it's funny because with developers and with me as, as a content creator marketing is it's one of the last things you think about but it's like 80 percent of the game so it's just it's it's one of those wild little things events are what have helped me the most what event like, uh, being on the steam yeah steam sales like talk game show okay that gave me the most wish list what about um because that was your game in the front mm -hmm. and like steam next phase in the live expo that's when I get the wish list. No, that makes a lot of sense because that's when you get the most exposure. What about um, Twitter did pitch a game uh, in June? Were you part of that? Yeah. Social media, I feel like it helps, but it's nothing compared to events. Yeah. Like, that's when I realized, like, the storefront, it's everything. You know, it's interesting because I don't know if every social media platform is like that, but specifically like Twitter, it's one of those things mm -hmm. where if you're a developer and you're posting on Twitter, you get a lot of attention from other developers and not yeah. and not you know the audience that you want to actually like get your game like it's awesome to get all that attention from developers but they're probably not going to be the ones buying your game so it's like this weird like full circle kind of deal where it's like here check out my game check out my game and then it just keeps going round and round and you're not really getting yeah. anywhere so it's one of those interesting little things that it, people don't really realize until they're getting into it but yeah no that's it's my favorite though twitter what i that's the one i i enjoy using twitter though oh. my favorite out of the social media yeah me too me too this is your you mentioned this is your first game right yes all right so i guess actually before we do anything why don't you introduce yourself yeah my name is jorge blanco i'm the developer behind mana finder and the newly formed studio wolfson based in in seattle and yeah mana finder is gonna be our first title you're a solo developer do you have like freelancers with you kind of what's the uh, what's the team look like for you uh solo dev but yeah i have a couple of freelancers helping me with the uh, pixel art music and sound effects but but even though they're freelancers, I feel like we've grown so close together mm. that it feels like we're a small team. I know with a lot of devs, sometimes the freelancers is one of those weird things where like they'll kind of come and go and it's kind of hard to keep one team. I mean, I'm not saying that with all devs, but some of them do run into that issue where they're trying to like, you know, build that team. You have that relationship with them where you kind of know what to anticipate and what to expect. So that's a really great sign to see a team that kind of sticks together in that sense. So with this game, though, where did the idea come from? Kind of what was your background in development? Did you have any? Well, so first of all, I've been doing games since high school, but mostly, you know, for friends using like the old school RPG makers, nothing commercial though. But yeah, I always had that itch of, and I always been like, you know, messing with Unity and several engines, mm -hmm. just trying to get something out. I always had that itch to do that. But then I actually, and that's why it made me choose my career. I'm actually, I studied computer science. So I work as a software developer okay. during the day and Moonlight as an indie developer. The game is made on Unity, correct? Or is it made on Game Maker? Actually, RPG Maker. It is RPG. MB, but a lot of custom plugins, JavaScript code. Why RPG Maker? Is that is it because that was kind of what you've known for so long? Or was there like, a, was there a strategy behind that? What was the, what was the approach there combination of three things first yeah familiarity uh that definitely helped mm. um secondly as i said i'm moonlighting so i wish i could do this full time mm. and i would certainly love to do that but rpg maker does 
a lot for you. It also constrains you, mm. but uh, I feel like for the vision I had in mind, RPG Maker fit the bill. And uh, the last thing is that uh, related to familiarity, I enjoy mm. using RPG Maker. It's almost like a for fun thing as well. With this game, outside of just what you built this game on, what was the most difficult aspect of kind of getting this project running? You know, this is your first project you've worked on and you said you're in coding. So I'm assuming that can't be the hardest aspect of it. Was it like the artwork? Was it the design approach? Was it the story? Kind of where was, where did you get stuck the most when you were building this game? Yeah, I would say like the first part, communicating, you know, you have everything in your mind but then telling the freelancers that this is what you want. And mm -hmm. RPG Maker is very constrained in the, the way it expects price sheets mm -hmm. and assets. So I also had to you know, tell the freelancers, I need this in this very specific, strict <laughs> format. So that took a bit to get the ball rolling, but uh, after that, that was easy. But then I would say something challenging is, was the cutting board, like uh, all these ideas I had. Mm, yep. And, um, not everything can make it, unfortunately. Maybe in the sequel, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I have to ask, why a Japanese RPG? Uh, that's, you know, my favorite genre um, since I've been a child. You know, um, all those kind of games really influenced me, even on like my career choice. <laughs> so really? Okay. I feel like uh, it's like almost like a language I understand. Mm. And so that's the way I best know how to express the story I wanted to tell. It's a story-heavy game, mm -hmm. so RPG was like natural fit for that. Yeah, and and Japanese style, just because as I said, it's what I'm very familiar with, what I really enjoy. Kind of skipping ahead briefly, with a Japanese mm -hmm. RPG built in a pixelated style, is that again you're kind of circling back to those constraints, not specifically with RPG Maker anymore, but with that art style, because Japanese RPG or even just Japanese art style is a very specific thing in itself and then you add that pixelated layer on top of it i would imagine there's some difficulty in kind of conveying that kind of talk to me about that for a second well the art style was uh, also you know something again that i'm familiar with mm -hmm. and i feel like uh given the small team and small budget going for a lo-fi pixelated style yeah certainly helps like i cannot do right now like a you know super hd triple a graphic productions yeah so I went for something I'm familiar with to be able to tell, you know, uh, a deep story. And uh, that's why I combined, you know, like that typical to to the overhead mode. But I also mm. added like, uh, you know, these vignettes, like comic style cutscenes to be able to tell those most, more like important parts of the story. So people can see the characters in higher detail and all that. I, I have to ask, which took longer to do, like the specific gameplay elements or the cutscenes themselves? Not all, but most are mm. static images. But they are kind of one of my favorite aspects because they really help bring the the world to life. Mm, so, with those constraints in RPG Maker, is that why you chose to do turn-based combat or combat? Sorry, or was that something more geared towards that Japanese art style? Kind of where was the strategy behind bringing that into the game? A uh, combination of yes, the Japanese style of classic. RPGs, but also, you know, it's a big world mm. with a lot of different enemies. So I saw that. Variety. Yeah, I saw that. You have like over a hundred plus, right? Yes, uh, unique enemy designs. Yeah. So with turn-based, it's I feel uh, easier to give each mm. a unique strategy and all that. It's still a challenge to design the battles to make them unique mm. and in particular. Yeah. But uh, you know, the programming behind it, it's it's more of a asset and small AI problem. Whereas, you know, with, for example, action refugees, it's a lot of also the physics and you add 
a lot of layers that I, I feel like a lot of the reason why mm. action RPGs tend to recycle more like uh, enemies and assets just because there's a lot more work you have to put on each enemy. Yeah. So for the story I wanted to tell, I felt like a uh, storm base would allow me to go bigger. A lot of devs, they start with the pixel art style and this isn't a platformer, but it's that pixelated top-down RPG style. So I guess it's kind of like, I don't know, somewhat similar in a not similar kind of way, if that makes any sense at all. But with this game specifically, I think what popped out to me was kind of, you have those two different camera angles and they really kind of change the entire game they keep like a fresh experience as you play and then you also have the turn-based combat so you have these like three different things that just keep kind of transitioning you into different aspects of the game world so it keeps that world fresh for you so with that in mind i kind of rambled there but the question would be like with a pixelated world a lot of the time developers struggle with keeping players immersed keeping them interested keeping them engaged so were those choices geared towards that issue or have you seen that as an issue with your demo has this been out kind of how is that factored into this game for you not only like the change of from you know map exploration mm. camera to battle camera keeps things fresh it shows you the world from different angles like usually on battle the battle card backgrounds mm. they complement the, the area you're exploring the world you can see like it's a bit more detailed mm. Um, even though it's a static image, you can see like the font, the flora in more detail, the colors. I feel like they complement each other and that's why each area having a unique identity with it, its you know, unique flora and fauna. Uh, it's also what helps keep things fresh. Mm. I love exploring in video games, you know, so different areas keeps me excited, yeah. keeps me rewarded, you know, finding secret things to pick up and I really focused on giving each area a very unique identity mm. so it's very clear every time you enter a new area that different like biome and the cool thing with fantasy is that you can also go crazy sometimes and you know you don't have to look you don't have to make areas that look very realistic yeah you can elevate the fantasy and that also gives you more room to keep things fresh yeah exactly with the turn-based combat is it all is it all turn-based is it all in that kind of setting and that art style or is there some where you step out and you do it in a different setting like actually within the map worlds or kind of how does that work in the game the all combat is in the turn-based mm. combat but uh, okay. there's a few things during exploration that also like for example in a very cold mountain you have to watch for not freezing so you have to hide in like uh, some flowers yeah. that keep you warm really yeah once you're warm again you can keep exploring so there's also some places where boulders are falling mm -hmm. so you have to watch out for those so i did spice up exploration a bit sometimes mm -hmm. again to keep things fresh one important aspect about mana finder is that the world is pretty hostile yeah it's beautiful but hostile life is harsh but i wanted to showcase that it's not only about the enemies you know the monsters it's also like the the environment itself it's uh it has some harsh places not fit for settlements of yeah mankind is the story is the, well i guess is the game world itself is it linear or is it kind of more open being an rpg i think a lot of people assume all rpgs are just open world which is obviously not the case but some of them are kind of like semi some of them are fully linear some of them are open where does this kind of world where does this world fall into that category following the javanese style playbook of rpgs mm. it's more linear okay definitely the final chapter though it's 
uh, choice matters a lot. So there's like different routes to, to be specific. But it is linear, yes, but the final chapter, which ultimately dictates how the story ends, is completely different with completely different areas, completely different enemies and all that. So it's mostly linear, mm. but with a combination of forking paths at the end. Yeah. If you'd mentioned that like you can get cold, you have to hide to warm back up. So with that, how much does these like environmental elements come to play in this game? Is there like, you know, do you have to worry about getting too hot, too cold? Is there like, I guess, in what is it in Zelda where you have to wear like certain clothes when you go outside or you like freeze mm. or get or get super hot? Like, is that kind of something that factors in or no? I would say it's enough to keep things uh, entertaining mm. the pace up, but it's not, ultimately it's not like a Zelda, like an action RPG kind of thing. Mm. So it's a balance, like especially in the first areas, there's not much a lot of that because you're just you know, learning yeah. the ropes, but eventually th th there's some stuff of that sprinkled, just enough I feel to keep things fresh. I wouldn't describe the game as being that what defines it. That's more like a, a additional elements. Because you wanted this to be a story focused game. You wanted it to really yes. kind of carry the story with other elements surrounding it. Uh, story, both in like straight up storytelling, but also like uh, the world itself mm. telling you like, you know, you're getting to know the world. I really focus a lot on that feeling of loneliness when you're exploring. Where does that, where did that, where, ah, where does that come from? Like, where is the idea for the game world and the inspiration to kind of have that, you know, is this exiled kind of world you're surviving and there's these harsh consequences and kind of where does all that come from it complements the story because mm. uh the themes i would say like mm. the story is not exactly about this but one theme i wanted to explore is creating a world where man is not like superior to all the rest of the animal kingdom mm -hmm. so like what if you take that like human exceptionalism i don't know how else to call it <laughs> and you know even the playing field yeah what would that world would look like so that's why i gave you know, that human uh, exceptionalism, like a, like a physical representation, which is uh, the mana stones, which they use to build settlements where they keep themselves safe. And therefore, that's where civilization can thrive. But beyond that, it's a pretty hostile world. And a, a big theme is like uh, exploring that world and understanding that there's a lot of beauty in it. And mm -hmm. like exploring that balance of, you know, mankind uh, taking over or just letting the world be that's a big part of like the underlying themes in mana finder yeah so it's like man versus nature drawing that from like a real world element kind of as an inspiration is there like specific things you drew that from is that like a game that kind of you drew inspiration from do you are you an outdoors person kind of where, where does that all come from i do yeah, a lot of hiking so yeah it's been i was gonna say it sounds like you like hiking because that's that's <laughs> that's kind of where that pulled from for me mm. that's cool though okay yep and that, and that also complements the idea of you know going these long areas going like very very far away from the settlements yeah by yourself camping and then it feels great when you're finally back it's a balance of okay i've gone too far it's exciting mm. but i'm also like starting to get tired mm. of you know I, I feel like i need to rest up and buy new stuff new armor and <laughs> reset yeah reset yeah gotcha so with that in mind i guess talk to me about well actually how long have as was it always like this was the story always kind of this build this approach when you started what kind of where did you start how long have you been working on this game around five years 2017 i started i feel like since i'm moonlighting i I can only, you know yeah progress it, it limits it but it has to have evolved quite a bit over that period of time yeah yeah 
So with that, um, like, what was the first kind of vision for it? Kind of, I'm sure it, it started off huge and they kind of contracted a little bit. That's usually kind of how development goes, but kind of, was that, was that how it happened yeah. for you? Actually, the world size was never cut, um, mm. but a few, I would say features wise, it was more ambitious. Um, that's the part where I had to cut stuff. A small example, I started to explore like, uh, I think like a small dating mechanic. Ultimately, I cut that because I felt like it's fun, mm. sure, but it wasn't really adding any value to the story I wanted to tell. Okay. And as much as I love optional content and as much as I would have loved to put that, you have to be wary of your budget yeah. resources. No, that so makes sense. you have to make sacrifices. And that's one example of small things I had to pick up. There was one area where I wanted to completely change the camera angle to mode 7. Um, but during playtest, I felt like it looked cool, but it was kind of boring. That was probably the biggest change I had to make. Like, uh, stylistically, it looked fun, but for people who are listening, uh, for people who are listening and don't understand what mode, mode seven is, can you kind of explain that to them really quick? Sure. Uh, so it's like, uh, like an early 3D technique mm -hmm. back in the 16 bit days where basically you draw the map. Mm -hmm. So it's like, uh, not really 3D. So in the map, uh, instead of being top down, it's as a third person kind of camera. Yeah. Star Fox, uh, in SNES, mm -hmm. like that kind of angle where, yeah. F-Zero, F-Zero on SNES. It's similar to that, Sonny, yeah. So yep. It's like a, you know, like an imagery, mm. an illusion of 3D, where it's not really 3D, it's just the way you draw it's things. 2D manipulation is the way I guess I would describe it, which mm. probably is super vague and doesn't help anybody, but that would be my <laughs> description of it. But you said it didn't make sense ultimately for you. It just, it didn't fit what you were trying to go for. It was kind of boring. I did heard of it, you know, because mm. it's an idea I always had in mind. Sometimes you have to be harsh with yourself mm. and, you know, when you finally see it in action, just wasn't what I envisioned and I felt like it, it really hurt the pace of the game because sure it looked fun, like a fresh camera angle, but mm. ultimately as a gameplay mechanic, it wasn't that fun because there was not much to do. And most importantly, on lower end machines, it would also mm. hurt performance because and this has already happened when people see Manafinder. One of the biggest things I've learned from the demo to make it more uh, performance uh, efficient. With performance in mind, is the game controller compatible or is it just PC um, desktop compatible? Well, I got lucky that the engine just supports controller by default. Um, so oh, RPG about it supports it by default. Oh, that's that is nice. And luckily, since you know turn-based RPGs mm. don't require a lot of input true it's pretty basic you just need three buttons and yeah d-pad or joystick i guess we're jumping way ahead here but rpg maker this game is right now it's only for pc with stuff like unity unity is extremely good at the porting process where it's just it mm -hmm. streamlines a lot of things for you really easily game maker is not quite as good but it is close behind it in a lot of areas but there are other stuff out there like i guess you could say godot for example which is it it it's not new per se anymore, but it is not as good when it comes to porting. RPG Maker, I am not as familiar with. Is the porting process for that, and I'm not saying you will port this game, but is the porting process for that as streamlined? Is it as easy or are there more obstacles for that? Uh, not as easy. And the, the, like the engine doesn't support mm -hmm. that by default. Okay. You have to, there are ways to do it, mm -hmm. um, but uh, no, not easy. Gotcha. <laughs> And that's not something you're planning right now. You want to keep it on PC at the moment. I'm in talks, early talks with a publisher. Okay. And they might help me out with the porting. Mm. 
but it's too early to say anything official like i can confirm it's coming to consoles but it's definitely something i'm looking into uh, mostly because to me it's not even about reference it's just i want to have more people play it as simple as that that makes a lot of and sense consoles it's uh it's a big market for video games and i, I would love for mana finder to be on consoles mm. so I'm, I'm working on that fighting for that but nothing official yet we kind of talked about different elements of the game world but we didn't talk about the game world as a whole so can you touch on exactly what players will experience in the game kind of how it evolves things of that nature touching briefly like the, the game world it's a small floating world and by small i mean the game is 12 to 15 hours long mm -hmm. and you'll get to explore most of the world you know an rpg always has excuses to have you run around the entire world and all these different areas mm -hmm. Um, and it's a world, as I mentioned earlier, that's dominated by uh, very powerful beasts. Uh, man is not superior in this world. However, they did manage to exploit mana stones, which are these like uh, stones found in the wild. And with that, they are able to, you know, make protective barriers that shield them from those uh, deadly beasts. So in the world, there's only one kingdom because they managed to find like a immense supply of mana stones mm -hmm. but the king there is like pretty much a tyrant to put it briefly so he exiles he has little tolerance for crime or anyone who believes in you know different ideologies or anything so he just exiles people and takes pleasure in doing that you start that way getting exiled from the one kingdom okay and pretty much no one knows much about the outside world because you're just told if you go out you'll die so people are happy with uh, you know, mm. staying in the in that kingdom. Yep. Uh, and that's where the game starts. You make your way to a settlement that also has a barrier, but the difference is they don't have a supply of mana. So that's why they hire, you know, the, mo the more able exiles to find the mana. And that's the job of being a mana finder, which is the, the title of the game. Yeah, yeah. Um, Does the game... But just to be clear, you'll notice that the chance of survival from exilement are pretty, pretty low. So it's a harsh game. And does this game have side quests to a degree? Do those impact the story and change kind of the trajectory of your ending? Kind of how does that play into everything? So that settlement where I said you make your way out after exile mm. and where you most of the it's like the hub of the game. Okay. You know, because it's the only place where you can lower your guard. There are some exiles there, uh, settlers that do provide side quests. Um, most of them are mini games. Mm. I didn't add a lot of fetch quests because I don't like them myself. So most of them offer unique activities that help you by, you know, giving you better equipment or better, like you have a dog companion in your game. And for example, you can uh, train him to learn new stuff. Can you pet the dog? Some of these side quests. You can pet it. Nice. There we go. Perfect. Nice. Sold me the game right Important. there. <laughs> <laughs> and. But if they impact the game, so they help you learn more about the world, but uh, they don't impact the main story. However, let's just say that uh, the ending images are altered depending on what side quests you finish and which you didn't. Okay. Um, my idea with side quests was more about exploring other aspects about, you know, the exiles and the world that the main story doesn't dive into and also to complement some of the, of the lore for those that like diet, I don't know, yeah. digging more about, because I know not, not all players like that, but those that do can definitely look forward to the side quest to learn more about. 
does this game include crafting? Does it include, I'm assuming there's kind of, obviously the inventory comes into play. I'm assuming there's kind of healing and stuff of that nature, consumables, things like that. So kind of how does that come into play in this game? Not every RPG has crafting, but does this one have crafting and how does that work within the game as well? Not crafting, mm -hmm. but resource management is super important. And again, coming back to the nature element, resources are... Uh, some of them are renewable, but they are also, you know, hard to come by. Some of them harder, some of them aren't. So resource management is important. And you can mine, for example, elemental ores, which then you can use them in combat to, for example, uh, imbue yourself with, let's say, a fire, a fire ore. Okay. And now you can deal like fire elemental damage and fire elemental defense. So this adds a, a cool layer, both in combat, because, you know, Elements are classic and very important factor in RPG, but it also complements exploration mm. because you are on the lookout for these ores because you'll know you'll need them in combat. Similarly, that's how you get healing items. You look for these combat plants and you can harvest them every time you run into one. There's also mana shards, which you use to cast magic. So there's a lot of resource management, even though there's no crafting. And most importantly, you're always on the lookout for both items because items play also a big role in, in combat. Mm and new weapons and armors. Weapons are, I would say, the most unique element I feel like I added to Mana Finder. So instead of an attack command, you have a weapon command. Okay. Uh, since it's a it's a single party member game, well, you do have a dog, but it's AI controlled. Mm -hmm. And you can, you can customize its, its, you know, its stance to be defensive, offensive, and all that. Yeah. But every turn, you only issue commands to Lambda, the protagonist. And choosing a weapon is important because each weapon has different, you know, it's effective against different types of beasts and ineffective against some beasts. It's a way to also spice up the, the turn-based combat. It's a balance of adding a lot of weapons because each has a unique animation and then only when you, after a certain amount of damage you've dealt and received, you can unleash a special attack. And I feel like the animations are something we put a lot of emphasis on. So the player, I feel, will be will feel rewarded for every weapon because it's like a new attack animation, a new unleash. And I feel like those look pretty cool. So... I hope they look forward to that. But also it's a balance of if you have like a hundred weapons, don't expect like a hundred weapons. Imagine every time you choose weapon command, like choosing between a hundred is not like a it's like ideal. It's limited for each quest, correct? Like you have to have them at the yeah. hub and then you pick when you go out. So it's not limited, but uh, the amount of weapons, it's, uh, it's not that large, but each weapon is very unique and some weapons do have upgrades. Um, so let's say like the spear you start with, you can get a better spear and then a better spear. And in the weapon command during combat, that spear automatically replaces the old spear. Okay. Because that makes like command selection faster. Yeah. Uh, I focus a lot on making combat not tedious, mm. basically. Every encounter, enemies have strategies, so I feel like it will keep you on your toes. It's not like a just spam attack and win. But I balance that by... You always see encounters on the map. There's no random encounters. When you're developing combat, sorry to interrupt you. When you're de mm -hmm. when you're developing combat from the technical side of things, how do you approach, especially with a turn-based game, how do you approach that combat? Is it procedurally generated where it kind of, you, it takes that tax off you where in a sense it's randomized? Is it, I'm assuming RPG Maker does not have the coding uh, capacity to kind of, I don't want to say learn, but where it picks up on specific patterns similar to Souls-like combat, and then it can generate moves based off of that. Is it just fully randomized? Kind of how does that 
work when you're mm -hmm. coding it. So each enemy has unique AI mm. and it's all handcrafted. <laughs> um, so that had to be a huge, is, huge part of development for you. Yes. Yeah. Some of it is reactive, actually. Like if they see, especially, for example, human enemies, mm. if they see you like use a fire ore to become fire, they too can use ores. So they'll probably use water. And, you know, every turn they'll be like keeping you under toes. Some enemies are reactive like that, others aren't, mm. but each enemy has a unique uh, AI. It was definitely one of the biggest aspects of development. In a way, you know, with a game like this, a lot of 2D platform, a lot of devs who create their first games, they make 2D platformers as a strategy because A, it's easier to execute that from a development standpoint. Um, there's a lot of kind of templates in place that you can follow, things you can do. I think it's a good starting place for any for any developer. But with the enemies in a 2D platformer, a lot of the times it's just generic and they just kind of charge at you and you can just knock them down and keep going. So with this game specifically, that's an interesting choice because that really kind of, it definitely notches up the difficulty on your side from a developer's standpoint, but it also adds like an element of difficulty and it adds an element of uniqueness to this game. That's not really a question. That's more mm -hmm. like a comment, but it's a cool element to see in this game for sure. I guess yeah. for me, the question would be, and this is kind of just off the wall, but when you're playing a AAA game, when you're playing a game on console, like your more mainstream titles versus indie games, I think what I've noticed is if somebody just plays like, I don't know, Call of Duty or like any AAA game, and then they come into the indie world mm -hmm. and they play an indie game, something I've always noticed is a lot of indie games are, they have a much higher rate of difficulty for players who aren't used to playing indie games versus triple a games so for you how does that was that something you factored in at all within this game is that something you've even noticed i guess for me specifically just because i get to experience a lot of different indie games throughout the steam world you just kind of pick up on that kind of pattern where it's like i think steam games are really built for people who love video games they play a lot of them they lean into that like challenging aspect of it so it's more built for them obviously than a casual gamer i would say and that's kind of tentative but for you how does that factor in when you're building this game it's definitely not easy i would say mm. but i designed the game in a way where especially the prologue and the first area, by limiting your options, mm. you don't have a lot of weapons yet, a lot of, uh, you don't have magic, nor mm, you cannot mine yet. Yeah. So by limiting what you can do and slowly opening it up, I feel like you learn through the, especially the first chapter, it's very like a guided tutorial kind mm. of game. But I've noticed that the first boss is uh, it's challenging, mm. but I haven't seen anyone give up. I've seen people take like uh, a couple of attempts. Yeah. It's like a 50-50, like 50% are able to win on the first attempt. The other 50, I don't know, like two, three attempts at most. Yeah. Um, but the first boss is like, welcome to, to Mana Fire. I told you this mm. world is full of deadly beasts. And you have to pay attention. If you just use attack, you will not win in this game. Um, but I feel like the game slowly teaches you that. And especially in the prologue, it's a bit more tutorialized. But I do not put the tutorials up front. Like, uh, I first let you try it. And if you fail, mm -hmm. then I teach you. Oh, turns out you can escape from combat when the odds are against you. 
That's that's um, an interesting you, approach. I like that. When there's an enemy that teaches you to defend, like for example, it charges its attack, and you're expected to defend yourself. Mm -hmm. But if you fail to do that in that first encounter, it then tells you, uh, remember, you can defend yourself when enemies charge attacks and all that. Um, so the prologue, I feel, helps bring even newcomers up to speed pretty quickly. And I've noticed that based on the Let's Plays I've seen and mm. actual you know, testing when I've showcased the game. It's definitely not an easy game, but I wouldn't say it's like a... It's not Dark Souls. Like, so, no. <laughs> and like, as I mentioned, you know, I think with people who play games on Steam, with people who play indie games, I think it's something that, as I mentioned, you either expect it or you're just somebody who plays a lot more games than, say, a casual gamer, and you don't even think about it. And that's the point, uh, that comes to the point where... I think if you make your game too easy, you'll just blast through it. You'll get bored, you know, in an hour and then they'll drop off. So yeah. the prologue, I admittedly have not played yet. So how long is it right now? Oh, it's like probably 15, 20 minutes. Oh, okay. Perfect. It's mostly the setup yeah. and a taste of combat. Mm -hmm. But again, it's a very limited combat. Yeah. It's more for you to okay learn the very basic mechanics of the game. The demo has been out for a little bit now. When it comes to people playing the game, Let's Plays, exposure through different events, things like that, there's a lot of feedback out there for every game that goes through that. Is there elements of feedback that you've brought into your game and said, hey, I'm going to change this because a lot of people are saying, you know, X or Y, or has the game really kind of stayed the same and there have just been like very small things, you know, obviously this bug fixes, but like smaller things surrounding that. So kind of was it a big change? Was it a small change? Was there no change? Did you just say, screw them, I'm going to keep my game the same? Kind of how did that go? <laughs> no, I did listen to feedback, mm. both explicit mm. and also feedback that I noticed myself mm. on multiple players, like uh, needing like the same kind of hints. So I did listen to some feedback. Mm. Like the most important thing that I did listen to completely was performance improvements. And from the very early stages to now, it's come a, a long way. And I'm really happy about that. And I even added like a performance mode mm. for like the super lower end PCs. So you render less stuff and therefore the game is more stable. But there's also feedback like, for example, in the early versions, mm. the settlement, the hub, yeah. the tents, didn't have any signs. So I was so used to it that I would remember, okay, this tent belongs to this NPC, mm -hmm. to this side quest. But a lot of people were getting lost. Where, where was this guy? Mm. Where was this NPC? Where am I supposed to bring these things to? Yep. So I added signs and I feel like I hadn't noticed how much not only does it help the player, but it made the place look like nicer. <laughs> <laughs> it gave the place more personality. So that's also one cool thing. I also added quality of life improvements like uh, an option for faster message speed, faster animations for, you know, the impatient layers. Um, <laughs> There's a lot of them nowadays. Also save, what else? Uh, yeah, a couple of things, but I would say the core of it, I didn't change it. Uh, it was mostly those small changes, quality of life, just to help the player guide. And a bit more of those small tutorials I mentioned. You know, I think a shorter demo, like a 15, 20 minute demo, that is the best approach because I think if you give... Oh. But second though, the, the, the demo features more than the prologue though. Uh, mm. So it's up to the first boss, which is the first part of the first chapter. Yeah. So I would say the full demo is like an hour. Yeah. Which is challenging 
especially you know, RPGs are like slow, slow to get started because there's a lot of story. So I also added an option in the demo where you can skip the prologue and jump straight into the action. Like if you only care about the gameplay and you don't care about the story for the sake of the demo, you can skip the prologue. I was going to Then the demo would be like 30 minutes. I was going to say, because I know you said your game is very story centric. So if you skip the prologue and then you're just trying to go for the gameplay, I would imagine it's kind of an incomplete experience for players, right? Yeah. But uh, when I, when you skip the prologue, you skip to the first area I actually designed. Okay. And that's why I feel like it still gives you the message about what kind of game this is. It, it really touches that going into the untapped world and you know not seeing any sort of human settlement just nature and nature and more nature so moving into kind of other elements of the industry in itself something that could impact this game localization is a very big part of development right now uh, across the board indie games triple a games it's it's a big part of it because gaming is is I don't know, is universal at this point. Everybody loves gaming at this point, and it makes it so with this game specifically, you'd mentioned you have those cutscenes with, you know, there's wording that's going across the screen, stuff like that. Is that how do you approach localization? Because there's a strategy behind it. You can't have your words baked into the images, so it can't just be, you know, I don't know, a JPEG. It's got to actually be coding on top mm-hmm. of that. And there's strategy on top of that where you want to make it easier so you can just kind of interchange that and do it as quickly and as efficiently as possible. So how do you approach localization? How big of a part of this game is that going to be? Localization is was huge mm-hmm. from the start. Um, um, bilingual, like my native language is actually Spanish. So even though I developed the game in English, mm-hmm. because that's how I played RPGs all my life. Yeah. Um, and because honestly speaking, like, uh, US is just the biggest market, but you know, Spanish is important to me at a personal level. So I had localization in mind from the start. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a bit hard because instead of, for example, when you create like all the dialogues, yeah. um, you have to export them to a separate text file. So sometimes in the engine, you only see like the key of the message you have to render. So sometimes it's you just see like, okay, text one, text two, text three, text four. Okay. And you have to remember more or less like, okay, this is what they were saying here. But then that makes localization very easy because... Uh, you could just plug and play basically on your end. Yeah, you just replace all the values for in Spanish. However, I had to choose a font that was, you know, friendly with both languages. And for example, Spanish, I feel like it's more verbose, like uh, it's just longer to write mm-hmm. stuff. So with dialogues, it's okay because there's auto text wrapping. But for example, on skill abilities or item descriptions, the space is limited. Yeah. So you have to be extra careful there. With you know, you have to sometimes describe things in a shorter way, and you have to just get creative. Is it? But uh, keep going. But yeah, and for the other thing you mentioned with the images, that's definitely something that I had in mind, not just for the images, but also for the UI elements. Yeah. Um, everything that's not rendered by the, you know, the text engine of the RPG Maker itself. I try to make it more like uh, understandable on imagery alone. And that's why the cutscenes 
are supported by text, but that text is rendered by the engine, not it's not part of the image. Yeah. So I'm also looking into localizing. I'm working on the Japanese, um, but they're helping me out with that. That I was going to be my next question. Yeah, if it was mostly because of the genre, and you know, I showcased on Tokyo Game Show last year and Indie Live Expo, which is also like a pretty, you know. Uh, Japanese-centric event. It's interesting. And just based on the general alone. Yeah. I was going to say it's interesting because there's a huge demand for games to have that option for Japanese, which if you look at like the regions that actually play it, the majority of that region is usually like US-based. As people who don't understand Japanese at all, they just like enjoy it for whatever reason. It's a pattern that I've I've seen on other games. I don't know why, but it's just one of those like weird things. Probably like I don't know. It's the same as like dubs and anime. It's just one of those one of those wonky <laughs> things that people love. So, but yeah. yeah. Um, and plus, to be fair, with Japan in mind, the Asian market, the U.S. market is still probably not probably the U.S. market is the largest market out there right now. But without a question the Asian market is quickly becoming one of the biggest in the world. And I think in the next few years, it will be the biggest in the world. And that's all of Asia. And obviously there's some political restrictions surrounding gameplay in, in some countries, specifically China. Yeah. But I think that will change in the next few years. And I think, you know, that's going to be the target audience that, that devs start kind of catering to as opposed to the US. And that's just me. Maybe I'm crazy. I mean, I'm not... I'm not the wisest person on the planet by any means, no, but uh, I, I made my game ready to be localizable. Um, mm. I wish I could do all languages, but no, that's just not realistic. Yeah, it's a very text-heavy game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's over forty thousand words to translate. You're right. So You're right. In a book. As Spanish, I did it myself, mm. and honestly, I was tired by the end. <laughs> it's just a lot of text to translate. Yep, but that also makes it expensive, right? Like I cannot. Like if I go to a you know French localization team, it's gonna be a lot of money and I don't have yeah. the budget. So future localizations will depend on you know the, the success of the game. No, that completely but makes it, sense. It's more about as I said, with consoles, it's more about I just want people to play. Mm -hmm. The more people that can enjoy Mana Finder, the the happier I am. That's my goal. No, no, I, I completely understand that. It, with indie developers, you're restricted. You need to focus on what makes the most sense. So I completely get that. Mm -hmm. Itself, before we kind of segue into the last few questions, is there things within Modifinder that you want to kind of key in on that we haven't touched on at this point? Like different elements, whether it's story, characters, combat, anything else in between? Is there anything that you think we really kind of missed that really needs to be touched on? Uh, choices matter in this game because they ultimately lead to one of these, uh, to, to the different routes. Yeah. But also the way characters react and other small things, your choices also have, uh, you know, consequences. Some short term, some longer term. Uh, it's something I love, uh, you know, where choices actually matter. I, I wish I had a budget to make them all matter in more significant ways. But again, you have to be mindful of, of that. Like, I'm not saying you should expect every yes, no question to, but. Definitely, you'll, for example, see characters react angrily to you or happy about the choice you made or question why you made that choice. So I hope you, you also enjoy, you know. It, 
it's a gr- making one of the many choices i was gonna say it's a great touch for any rpg and, and me i mean whenever i get talking to devs and we talk about you know different choices and how they impact the world i think instantly of like fable and what is it called the morality meter i think that was what it was called where you mm-hmm. either were good or bad things like that like i just i love elements like that in these in, in games and obviously i would assume that it's it's not as in depth as fable would be but it still has that mm-hmm. element where you can see where your decisions yeah. Yeah, where they make kind of an impact on the world, which is very cool to see. That is definitely more influenced by Western RPGs. But uh, again, it's not at the same level as Fable, but it's definitely something I put a lot of extra emphasis. When you say, so with Japanese RPGs, is that is it different? Is it not as, is it something much more focused on kind of these well, like progression of events? Kind of walk me through that. Yeah, for the most part, not all. Mm. Uh, but most series, sometimes they just don't even make choices. It's very strictly linear. Yeah. Sometimes you do get extra bonuses or stuff depending on cycles you make, but uh, choices don't really matter or don't really are not even a gameplay element. Mm-hmm. There are exceptions, of course, like the Shin Megami Tensei series, and where choices matter a lot. Yeah. But I feel like choices being very important is definitely more of a Western RPG, you know thing you would expect yeah. out of. That's fascinating. I never thought about it that way. One developer that I talked to, he told me there, I think he called it the, was it the bead approach with RPGs where it's like a full circle kind of deal where you make a decision at the beginning, but no matter what decision you make, ultimately at the end of that arc, it's the same ending, but it makes you feel like you've made a decision. And that's more of, that's not necessarily a genre like Japanese RPG versus yeah, yeah. Western. That's more of like a design approach, but it's one of those intri- interesting little like elements that you can bring into how you approach your game and how it impacts your world. So even small NPCs, mm-hmm. like for example, there's a spoiled kid where if you play along, mm-hmm. he, and as you progress through the game, you know, the NPC dialogue is refreshed because, uh, People react to what's happening, you know? Yeah. So, for example, that's Paul kid. As you continue through the game, if you went down playing along with him, he'll continue to be spoiled. Whereas if you call him out like, through the rest of the game, you'll see how he antagonizes you for having, you know, confronted him. Hmm. And it's a, it's a small, silly thing. Yeah. But uh, that's the kind of things, I mean, where your choices do have some yeah say in this it's like player immersion it kind of it takes you in and like mm-hmm. says hey this matters that's, that's awesome i like that a lot um, speaking of choice uh another important aspect of choice is you level up by praying to the gods mm-hmm. the main goddess she levels you up but then there's two other gods one focuses on offensive skills and the other on defensive okay so depending on which god you offer like your leveling up point mm-hmm. called blessing point too you can choose whether to start making like offensive playstyles or defensive playstyle or alternate so i also give the player the freedom of you know adding some agency on how they want to build their character is and is that like a skills tree deal or is it specifically those like three things it's just character defense and offense uh, skill tree okay uh, ish like uh some is more like yeah level up your attack even further other are learn actual skills okay and there's other things and as you unlock them Mm -hmm. you unlock even more uh depending on what you're starting to focus on okay so for example if you choose i want more attack you'll get even more options to level up your attack in the future 
we've been talking about kind of the dev world as a whole you know it's expanding obviously mm -hmm. there's a lot going on within it right now maybe it's narcissist in me but when i look at game development right now i think there's a lot of great elements to it but with everything with anything there's always some kind of negative attributes that can be put on something and with game development it obviously is no exception to that rule there's there are some negative aspects within the gaming world and for you specifically if you could target one specific thing in the gaming world that needs fixed that needs attention what specifically would that be and this is your first game you know as a developer maybe it's limited to something like you know funding for games or or exposure or marketing or maybe it's something something much larger but kind of for you specifically what would that be now they just say it's my first game now that i love games all my life but now that i'm on the other side yeah that's, okay. that sounded more condescending than it should have it was not supposed to come out that way <laughs> no, no, I mean, that now i understand sometimes why you know uh, decisions have to be made mm. and sometimes you as a dev want to make like uh, way more ambitious in world or experience mm -hmm. but uh, you have to be realistic with the situation right now and the market it's very competitive yeah it's a good thing i feel i i, I personally do like that everyone can make a game now in, in a sort of way like it's more accessible than has ever been right now yeah. like you can download the rpg maker and try it however the problem in my opinion is you know competing with you know the multi-million dollar productions and all that and ultimately you're fighting for the attention of consumers yeah and that's pretty difficult so if there's one thing i feel would help is if the the marketplaces like steam and all that would treat indies differently and maybe help them by taking less of a cut or things like that or maybe after you reach a certain threshold they give you back some money to you know incentivize you to make more games mm -hmm. because it's hard to to turn this into a you know a profitable not even profitable but something that you can keep on going yeah and it's like i feel like a vicious cycle because of how difficult it is to you know make money you sometimes have to be conservative about the risks mm. you can take um so it's a lot of back and forth and for indies i feel like it's extra harsh and that's why sometimes a lot of of them have to you know seek publishers and all that or compromise their visions yep so if there's something i could change is hopefully to make it easier to get something out of this um, monetarily speaking that but uh i wouldn't make it fall on consumers because i also understand you know they're they may not have the money to do so um games are expensive sometimes as it is it's a double-edged sword for sure exactly yeah but i know that the you know the big companies that hold the markets i know they have some some space i feel to help a bit in this equation they have a lot of power in this equation that's my point oh yeah no they definitely do it's interesting because steam when it first got started steam five plus years ago or whatever you know a while back i don't think and i could be way off but for me looking back steam never was a place where like AAA games were like huge it was something for indie devs it was something for developers or smaller teams making their games showcasing their games and that was kind of how you got exposure and that was kind of the nicer element of game dev a decade ago it was harder to make games but it was easier to get them exposed to more audiences whereas nowadays 
it's easier than ever to make a game, but it's also harder than ever to make a game because of that specifically. And I think AAA companies have leaned into Steam, which is great for players on PC, but it impacts developers who are on Steam in a negative way because then their games get bumped down because of all of that funding and all of that marketing that kind of pushes them off to the side. So it's, it's, as you said, like it's a vicious cycle and it is unfortunate, but at the same time for triple develop, triple A developers, it's interesting because you see all these like acquisitions going on all over development right now, you know, Xbox is doing it. PlayStation is doing it where they're buying up all these studios and a conversation, a couple of conversations that I, I have had, my thought was, you know, why is this why what's the strategy behind this you know why is it happening and i think for a lot of these people that i had had this discussion with the consensus kind of was there's not enough developers in the market to keep up with the demand at this point so they're buying these studios up for the manpower behind them which is interesting because like you know as you said you know you're making this game you're trying to kind of step into this career path in a way a lot of developers are trying to do that and they're on the other side of this coin and on the other end is, are these AAA developers that need even more demand, even more, even more developers, especially coders at this point. So it's like this whole ecosystem of just, I want to say fuckery, but I, I think that's kind of a, 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 a harsh way of putting it. But it's just like, there's so many layers to it at this point. And it's just... Yeah, it's a very complicated problem. Mm. It's, there's no easy way to point the finger at anyone. Yeah, That's also part of the problem itself. Like, how do we... How do we fix this? Yeah. And it's just like, because I development, I think, grew at such a rapid rate in the last five years, specifically with COVID. I think COVID, it, it completely exploded. And I read an article yesterday. It was saying gaming is going to have a recession in the next few years, which I think is comical. I, it's not. I mean, maybe like a 1% hit. That's not a recession, though. That's just expected from the numbers you picked up in COVID. Like, so we the numbers are more massive than they've ever been there's more technology out there than there's ever been there's vr games that are becoming huge steam is becoming massive so i think the opportunity is definitely there it's just like you said do you have the marketing to get to those audiences do you have the funding to get to those audiences which is where like wish lists and and kickstarters and all come in and publishers become more detriment or not detrimental they become more important than ever and it's just it's one of those is again it, there's layers upon layers upon layers and you you'd mentioned and i don't know if you can touch on this but you mentioned that you were in talks with the publisher or is that you can't talk or, about that yeah or console release okay because uh Again, because we don't have the manpower right now to do it myself, yeah. and because the engine complicates it. And this publisher has experience with working specifically RPG makers, so that certainly helps. Okay, but did you have a Kickstarter, or have you not had a Kickstarter? No, no. this was self-funded. So that was part of why I had to be very conservative with the budget. Mm -hmm. um, I, this was a passion project, definitely. Mm. I moonlighted, as I said. Mm. So I didn't wanted to make it myself. Didn't want to compromise on my vision or anything. That's why so I decided to keep a scope manageable that I could okay. do it myself. So you wanted to keep all the all the assets focused on the development and polishing that, as opposed to kind of throwing mm -hmm. money at a Kickstarter. I'm absolute creative, like <laughs> control. 
No, that but, a uh, lot of a lot of indie devs say that they want full control of their project, which. But uh, if I can continue doing this, if I at least get some moderate success mm. and can continue doing this, I feel like uh, I would love to explore like going bigger on the next project, and that may mean, you know going down the more traditional uh, path of unreal engine um, 5 <laughs> let's go not baby a leap. no <laughs> maybe that's the third but, game um, yeah maybe a kickstarter or a publisher or something gotcha because i mean making games is, is expensive <laughs> yes it is yes it is with that in mind do you have a release window you can touch on yet or no you're just kind of yes you do okay excited that it's full of this year okay um the game is almost ready but it's a lot of you know polishing and testing yeah and for indies now you also have to be wary of you don't want to release next to a triple a yep especially of the same genre like i don't want to release next to for example like a let's say a final fantasy title i mean i love final fantasy but there I, everyone's gonna be talking about that rpg and yeah, I'm gonna look at you finding a window where you don't overlap with other games yeah. that uh, will be on everyone's mind. You don't have to, t and I'm probably trying to lean in on like when specifically in the fall. But I, I would say as more of a comment, October is an extremely busy month with when it comes to releases. I'm assuming you probably took yeah. that into account. That, that's part of why I don't have a final date. Yet. Yeah, no, just a window. Gotcha. That makes sense. But I also don't want to like have a product ready and just wait too long either. That's also it's a balance, right? Yeah. No, it definitely is. And there are there are a lot of big Steam events. Well, or not a lot, but there's a major Steam event in the fall, which would kind of coincide with that. So that would probably work out very very much in your favor as well. I don't know the specific date on when Steam Fest is, but it's usually what a late no it's either late september already on the team next though in june mm. and you can only be in one per year yeah so oh that's true so you're already okay so that wouldn't coincide However, with you. i signed up for a couple of other events mm -hmm. and i'm waiting to they haven't done the selection yet yeah but i'm hoping i get selected at least on a few of them yeah that would be a big boost because i noticed they are like at least for me they've been the big wishlist boosters and for like you said events are the kind of the biggest deal because that's really where you get the most reach for just casual gamers for people who are just interested in hey what's going on in the indie market so that's that's a big deal yeah and then I, sometimes i'll ask developers like what do they have planned post-launch but for you i think i'll save that question just because i think for you it probably depends more on exactly how the game lands at launch and then kind of yeah the, the only known is i i don't want to finish japanese in time gotcha um but that's the only thing I know post-launch. Okay. But it will be mostly like listening to feedback, bug fixes. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully not many. I mean, for you, it... Well, I guess for you, I would say it would be less aggressive than, say, a game that is more multiplayer-based or even mm -hmm. more, yeah, yeah, more combat-based or whatever you would say. I mean, for a more story-based RPG, I feel like you probably flesh a lot of that out with your demo and, and with people doing playthroughs exactly. right now. The, yeah. the demo already gives me a lot of confidence yeah. and the fact that you sent a few people have tested the game completely mm -hmm. and planned. And it's, I would say it's pretty stable right now. Yeah. The build. It's just 
it's more about balancing difficulty and those kind of things what I'm working on. And sometimes, even after this many playthroughs, there's still like one grammatical error somehow. Yeah. <laughs> there's always something. I mean, yeah. people don't. I think for people who just casually game, I think it's something overlooked that there's a lot of patching that goes into games nowadays. There's just so much of it. And I guess a short tangent for me would be like people who complain about multiplayer games nowadays and say like, hey, there's they release them and there's so many bugs. And my thought would be, of, of course there are bugs because there was like, what, yeah. two play tests, right? Over maybe a few weeks. And like after that, the only people playing it were the devs. Like there's so much behind this project where it has to have those hundreds and hundreds of hours of gameplay to flesh out all of those bugs. Otherwise you'll never get them. And it's unfortunate, but it's just part of the process and evolution of games now. And it's something that I think it's unfortunate because it kills projects like say cyberpunk, it destroyed cyberpunk at launch, which was just for me, somebody who had waited for that game for over, you know, eight years, mm -hmm. it, it was devastating to see that. And it kills games like Battlefield, which for me, I'm more of, I'm not a huge Battlefield person. So for me, that didn't hit as close to home, <laughs> but it's just one of those things. It was also Anthem, right? I think that one. Yep. Anthem. Came and went. Anthem. There was, and my joke also has always been with, um, with Amazon games. What was the Amazon uh, RPG that came out recently? I can't think of the name. I'm not New World, but I'm not sure. I think you're right. I think it is New World. The joke for me has always been Amazon has made like two or three games prior to New World and all of them came and went pretty quickly. And my joke was Amazon can make anything except a good video game because they always mm -hmm. kind of crash and burn. And New World, it's kind of it's lasted longer, but it's again one of those unfortunate things where I think Amazon they know how to do a lot of things really well. I don't think they quite understand the approach with game development, which is unfortunate because if they did, I think they would kill it. But with things like New World, I I'm just guessing what I feel like. I would think a company like Amazon thinks about how will this make money before yeah the creative aspect of it. Yep. Yep, but you're dead on. I think you're yeah, I think you're exactly right. Yeah, I think and for me the pinnacle like the the golden like the peak of game development I think for me is Riot. Riot is perfection in every sense of the word for me. Just because everything they do is perfect in my opinion, in my humble opinion. Like Arcane on Netflix was amazing. Obviously League. Yeah, yeah. It's such a it was And I don't play League of Legends. I just haven't given it a chance, mm. but I I decided to watch Arcane and it was pretty cool. It was like it's it's something that if you're casual or if you play League like crazy, it hits both audiences. So it's like, er, mm. like and they integrate everything so well. They do all their play testing perfectly. They know how to bug test insanely well they have a formula that works and has worked for such a long time it's just one of those things like if you know how to approach it then you can nail it but i think ultimately circling all the way back to after a long kind of roundabout tangent i think you know you can't get around bug fixing no matter no matter what game big or small it is so ultimately mm -hmm. it probably will affect your game at launch but i think not as much as 
you would not as much as larger scale games that focus on more multiplayer and key elements like that would have to concern themselves with. Yeah. So I think you'll be pretty, pretty well set off. <laughs>